Hello and welcome back to the State of Education presented by One Room Education. I'm Katie and today I'll be your guide as we start our conversation on critical theories in our classroom by talking about what critical theories are and how they're affecting our education system today. In today's episode, we will be discussing what critical theory is, why it's such a hot button topic in the news and politics right now, and then we'll finish off by taking a look at different ways that critical theory is being implemented today, both inside and outside of the classrooms. It's gonna be a really interesting conversation today and I'm really excited to share all of this information with you because it really brings a lot of things into perspective for you whenever you look at the American and Western culture as a whole. So come on in and have a seat while we start talking about critical theories in our classrooms. What's the big deal with critical theories anyways? So today I'm going to start off fittingly at the beginning. I thought that I would start today off by defining a few terms as I normally do so that we all have the same general base understanding of what we're talking about. And then we're going to take a look at the origins of critical theories so we know what we're looking at. So let's, let's just, let's dive into this rather sticky topic. So according to Britannica.com, that's right, the Encyclopedia Britannica online, (laughs) one of my favorite resources. So according to Britannica.com, critical theory is, quote, Marxist-inspired movement in social and political philosophy originally associated with the work of the Frankfurt School. Drawing particularly on the thoughts of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, critical theorists maintain that the primary goal of philosophy is to understand and to help overcome the social structures through which people are dominated and oppressed. Believing that science, like other forms of knowledge, has been used as an instrument of oppression, they caution against a blind faith of scientific progress, arguing that scientific knowledge must not be pursued as an end in itself without reference to the goal of human emancipation. Since the 1970s, critical theory has been immensely influential in the study of history, law, literature, and the social sciences, unquote. Now, I do want to mention one thing here. They say in this definition, without reference to the goal of human emancipation, I want to note something on that, that human emancipation has never happened solely through thoughts and ideas. It always, 100% of the time, is done through the use of force, including our own revolution right here in the United States. We like to think that it was a revolution of ideas, which it was, but those ideas were backed up by physical force to emancipate us from the colonial power of England. To get a better idea of what Britannica was talking about, because again, that is a very thorough definition that they gave, But I wanted to get a little bit more information. So I did something. I did something bad. I went to Wikipedia. (laughs) I admit it. I feel dirty. I'm not going to lie. 
But I went to Wikipedia to help just sort of clarify a little bit because that was a very academic answer to what critical theory is. So I wanted something a little more, I don't know, colloquial, I I suppose. So what I found on Wikipedia was a little bit surprising. And I'm sure that if you were like a middle schooler or a high schooler or even in the lower levels of college and you went to this Wikipedia entry to figure out what critical theory is, it might be a little bit confusing. So I wanted to go ahead and go over what Wikipedia says critical theory is and kind of explain it a little bit more because, again, they, uh, Wikipedia tries to be, they try to be fair, but in their efforts to try to be fair and balanced and unbiased, sometimes they get a little too far into the weeds with their definitions. So Wikipedia's definitions differentiate between critical theory capitalized and critical theory uncapitalized. Now, for the uncapitalized critical theory, their definition is, quote, a critical theory is any approach to social philosophy that focuses on reflective assessment and critique of society and culture to reveal and challenge power structures. With roots in sociology and literary criticism, it argues that social problems stem more from social structures and cultural assumptions than from individuals. It argues that ideology is the principal obstacle of human liberation. And I just want to interject in this quote that whenever they're talking about human liberation, they're essentially saying the same thing as the human emancipation section from the Britannica definition. Let's get back into this Wikipedia quote here. So continuing the quote, critical theory finds applications in various fields of study, including psychology, sociology, history, communication theory, and feminist theory, unquote. The Wikipedia entry goes on to state, quote, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy distinguishes between critical theory, capitalized, as the product of several generations of German philosophers and social theorists of the Frankfurt School on the one hand, and any philosophical approach that seeks emancipation for human beings and actively works to change society in accordance with human needs, usually called critical theory without capitalization on the other. Philosophical approaches within this broad definition include feminism, critical race theory, and forms of post-colonialism. Unquote. Um, I, <laughs> I will be going into post-colonialism 
at a later date. It seriously just kind of needs its own episode. <laughs> so it, it will be getting that. So make sure that you are following the podcast on whichever platform you happen to be listening to me on and head over to one-roomeducation.com to sign up to get one room content straight to your inbox so you don't ever miss any future episodes or articles from oneroomeducation.com. Now, to be able to talk about critical theories, we have to look back at what came before these theories were introduced, right? Because as was mentioned by both Wikipedia and Britannica, the critical theories weren't introduced until the 1930s, right? So what was there before critical theory? Well, there was something called traditional theory. Oh, doesn't that sound nice? We started off with traditions. So traditional theory is what we think of as pretty much general facts <laughs> nowadays. They are solid ways of looking at things that don't really challenge and don't really change anything. They tend to be applied to physical and natural sciences. So to get more information on this traditional theory, I did some research and I found that one of the best summaries was from a website called uberbo.wordpress.com. I know it's a crazy website name, but the analysis that this dude has is actually very good. And the article is from 2012 and it's called Summary of Horkheimer's Traditional and Critical Theory. So that is the actual book that introduces critical theory and coins the term traditional and critical theories. It's really interesting. And in regards to traditional theory, Uberbo says, quote, despite the apparent neutrality of such concepts, Horkheimer argues that they are actually derivations of the society to which a scholar belongs. For example, a positivist or pragmatist may claim to pay most attention to the connections between the theoretical work and the social life process, but in reality, they integrate facts into conceptual frameworks to keep the social division of labor up to date so that he himself and all who use them may be masters of the widest possible range of facts. Traditional theory is a theory of the status quo in that it is designed to increase the productivity and functioning of the world as it presently exists, unquote. Now, I have to admit, after reading about the differences between traditional and critical theories, it immediately brought to mind teaching and education. And obviously, I was going to circle this all back around to education because it's the, the podcast is about how things relate to education. But I was surprised how quickly in my research for this episode that teaching and education specifically came to the forefront of my mind. If you think about it, one part of your education is about the numbers, the facts, and systems as we know them within our society, right? Then the other part looks at those numbers, facts, and systems and evaluates what's actually going on behind them. 
So I thought that, that was really interesting that that's the essentially the underlying concept behind this traditional and critical theory idea, or at least it's supposed to be. <laughs> because when education only teaches how to work within the current system and deters the questioning of established theories, it isn't just boring. It's called indoctrination. And yes, I said the I word in regards to education, which happens to bring me to my next point. <laughs> now that we've defined the idea behind critical theory and the differences between it and what is now called traditional theory, let's go back and talk about all of those different theories that were listed as falling under the critical theory umbrella, shall we? So there were quite a few different social and academic fields of study that fall under the critical theory category, according to Britannica and Wikipedia. Um, I read them off kind of fast, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, reiterate those issues, those social issues and fields of study cited in the Britannica and Wikipedia definitions. So these include history, law, literature, psychology, sociology, communication theory, feminist theory, feminism, critical race theory, and forms of post-colonialism. In addition to that list, thoughtco.com adds cultural theory, gender and queer theories, media theory, and media studies to this list, to, to this massive list of disciplines, essentially, that fall under the critical theory umbrella. And if you think about it, that list is essentially our entire lives socially, right? We'll be getting into almost all of those in future episodes individually and how critical theory has affected society as a whole. Now let's take a look at what all of these things have in common. Can you guess? Let's see if you're right. They have all found their way into schools from pre-K all the way up straight through doctorates. I have a 17-month-old son, and there are even books on how to teach your baby to be an anti-racist and a feminist, and there are entire lines of books on how you can help your baby be an active ally, and how you can have your baby be a feminist, like, like, series of books, and... It's really interesting to see how far these critical theories have permeated not only education where they're supposed to be, but our greater culture in general because of them being talked about within the educational sphere. We'll talk about why I see these things as inherent issues in just a few minutes, though. 
because anti-racism and feminism and allies and stuff like that sounds like a really good idea for for society in general so what is your issue katie i know we'll we'll get there i promise so with this in mind i want to go back to uber bill (laughs) and his summary of horkheimer's work okay so Uberbo states, it, critical theory, retains a single existential judgment. The basic form of the historically given commodity economy on which modern history rests contains in itself the internal and external tensions of the modern era. It generates these tensions over and over again in an increasingly heightened form and after a period of progress it finally hinders further development and drives humanity into a new barbarism unquote so this means that critical theorists believe that if left to their own devices the natural state of humanity is barbarism at least in some form, right? So I'm not going to say that I totally disagree with that. Because if there aren't rules in place, if there's not stuff going on, people go crazy, right? They start killing each other, they start wars, they they just cause problems because they're bored, right? So I would say that that's probably some sort of state of barbarism. And if you're a religious person and you believe in the Bible or the Torah or the Quran or anything like that, you know that that man's natural state is sin. Like that's essentially types of barbarism as well, right? We know what barbarism looked like in the past, but I wonder what this barbarism, like quote unquote barbarism, would look like today. Is it killing babies? Is it gathering in hordes and burning down neighborhoods because someone told you it was okay to do? Is it killing people of different political ideologies than you? What happens when the status quo gets disrupted for disruption's sake? Just asking questions, people. Just asking questions. Because after all, apparently, the job of a critical theorist is to formulate a critique both against defenders of the status quo and the distracting conformist or utopian tendencies within his own household. That's a quote from the Uberbo again. And I think that that's really interesting because according to the original critical theorists, that's the job of a critical theorist is to look at an argument from both sides and try to keep your own biases out of it. Well, according to thoughtco.com, quote, in his work, Horkheimer asserted that a critical theory must do two important things. It must account for society within a historical context, and it should seek to offer a robust and holistic critique by incorporating insights from all social sciences, 
unquote. Now, I'm not going to say that I totally disagree with this premise, right? Because if you've listened to any episode of the State of Education podcast, you kind of understand that that's what I'm advocating for. I'm advocating for education from a historical context, not from the context of current societal norms. And whenever we teach from a historical contextual viewpoint, we also need to talk about the pros and cons of what happened and look for holistic critiques. That's absolutely 100% correct. However, is that really what's happening with critical theories today? And how are they actually being applied? I would posit that this is not how critical theories are being applied today. This is exemplified by the paper Power, Emancipation, and Complexity, Employing Critical Theory that was published in the journal Power and Education. This specific paper brings me back to the idea of education being indoctrination that I touched on earlier. Rather than a place to learn how to look at the world critically and decide what's going on for yourself. In this paper, the authors Shirley Steinberg and Joe Kincioli argue that critical theory needs to be quote unquote reconceptualized. According to the abstract of this paper, quote, the author's notion of critical theory is described as reconceptualized in that it is more sensitive to modes of domination that involve race and gender and to the complexity of lived experience than the Frankfurt School's original articulation of the notion in the 1920s in Germany, unquote. So in the abstract of this paper, they are acknowledging that they are separate from the original critical theory and establishing new criteria for the practice of critical theorists. So what do the authors think this should look like? Well, let's see what they have to say in their opening statement. Quote, in this reconceptualized context, contemporary critical theory argues that so-called democratic societies are not as democratic as generally believed. Democratic citizens are regulated by the forces of power operating in a general climate of deceit. In this contemporary condition, individuals are acculturated and schooled to feel comfortable in relationships of either domination or subordination, rather than equity and interdependence. Now, I want to ask you if that last part sounded familiar. Relationships of either domination or subordination, rather than equity and interdependence. That should sound familiar, okay? If it doesn't, you should really go back and listen to episode eight of the State of Education podcast. I will make sure to have it linked 
in the notes for you and over at one-roomeducation.com in the full notes and references section under related listens because I did a full episode of equity versus equality in the education sphere and which one um, actually creates a more equitable outcome for all students, not just some. So it's a really, really interesting episode. I highly suggest you go over and listen to it if you aren't totally sure why I'm a little triggered by the term equity. The authors of this paper go on to assert that, quote, as critical theorists consider the politics of thinking in an electronic maze of contemporary communication, many have recognized the need for a serious conversation between critical assertions and counter-Cartesian or postmodern modes of social and educational critique. Now, I don't know about you, but you might be thinking at this point, Katie, what the F does that mean? (laughs) Okay, because I'm not going to lie, I thought the exact same thing. So I looked it up for you and, and mainly for me, but I looked it up. So let's start with what counter-Cartesian means, because that sounds super intimidating to a lot of people, okay? So we're going back to Britannica.com, and according to them, Cartesians hold that knowledge, indeed certain knowledge, can be derived through reason from innate ideas, unquote. So in order to be counter Cartesian, you would have to be counter reason or against reasoning ideas to their logical conclusion. Now, let's look at what a postmodernist is. Again, from Britannica, postmodernism is, quote, a late 20th century movement characterized by broad skepticism, subjectivism, or relativism, a general suspicion of reason, and an acute sensitivity to the role of ideology in asserting and maintaining political and economic power. Unquote. Now, if we put all this together and the authors of this paper, again, published in a peer-reviewed journal, Power and Education, are advocating for the implementation of theories and social constructs within education that are not based in rational thinking or the pursuit of innate truths. But in the, quote, domination that involve race and gender and to the complexity of lived experience, unquote. Now, that is a bold assumption. And it's not really an assumption. That's a bold statement, right? And you might be thinking that I'm a little bit crazy right now. I've got my tinfoil hat on. I've been a little, I got a little too much sun during the heat wave this past week, right? But check this out. The paper by Steinberg and Concello goes on to blatantly state it 
in the fifth and sixth paragraphs, okay? Quote, as our doctoral students, for example, learn to employ critical semiotics, they often uncover emancipatory meaning in particular television programs. They integrate such meaning into their own teaching, engaging students both intellectually and at the level of pleasure in the emancipatory struggle. Their students, in the process, learn to identify with marginalized groups who traditionally have been ignored or degraded in the school setting. As it counters the mainstream, a reconceptualized critical theory decenters the unchallenged interpretation, employing both semiotics and a transformative hermeneutics to engage with the previously excluded. In this context, it helps drag us out of the stagnant moral pond of 21st century Western culture, unquote. As I have mentioned several times in this podcast, education shapes a person's entire life. Now, if the authors of this paper and countless others around the world that are reading this journal get their way, then this departure from the rational world will be the way of the future, not just for the occasional thought experiment needed to better understand ourselves and where we come from, okay? That, that's needed. But as a way of life and being within the wider world. If you look at the world today and wonder, what happened? Why does everyone seem real crazy now? All you have to do is look to articles in education journals like this. It drives me absolutely insane because this is a peer-reviewed education journal. And they're talking about ways to completely transform Western culture in the 21st century and that that's actually their end goal. These people are literally advocating that you only care about your own experiences and people within your group. Pick, pick whichever group you want to be a part of for, for this thought experiment. And then you blame the system for all of your issues within it instead of, I don't know, looking at yourself in ways that you can work within it. If you look at this combined with several of the other issues that I've discussed so far on this podcast, I think the importance of taking an active role in the education of our nation's youth becomes apparent. If it's not, then I am not doing my job correctly. Just to let you know, I will be exploring some of the specific critical theories that were mentioned today in future episodes. I'll be taking a look at the effects that they're having on the students who have been just completely immersed in them their entire academic careers. Remember, you only know that something isn't right if you're taught how to distinguish between right and wrong through looking at events and actions through a logical 
and rational lens. So if the entire academic career of somebody has been just completely immersed in these critical theories, the these neocritical theories, essentially, then how are they supposed to know what's right and wrong if everything's relative? So I'm going to give one last quote from this paper by Steinberg and Cancello that I think exemplifies the idea presented in it and just pretty much the issue I have with it as a social studies teacher who believes that critical thinking skills, you know, the ability to evaluate situations and analyze them for yourself and determine what's right or wrong for yourself instead of being told is the primary role of education, especially on a secondary level. So let's, I don't know, let's just, let's get into this. And yeah, it literally hurts my brain and my soul. It hurts my brain soul. This stuff does. So (laughs) the author's state in one section where they're giving examples of ways that critical theory can be applied within the education system and within education in its larger capacity, quote, a critically grounded education is dedicated to challenging comfortable assumptions about politics, culture, psychology, human potential, and the moral domain. What are the consequences of schooling? Is the United States really a democratic society? Is intelligence genetically determined? When one has exposed asymmetrical power relationships and their harmful effects on human beings, what moral actions are mandated? These are only a few of the questions that emerge from a critical politics of skepticism. Unquote. Now, if you have listened to one episode before this of the State of Education podcast, you can probably pick out at least three issues that I'm going to have with this, with this quote. Oh, this quote so enrages me on a fundamental being sort of level. So let's start at the beginning, okay? A critical grounded education is dedicated to challenging comfortable assumptions about politics, culture, psychology, human potential, and the moral domain. Okay, I mostly agree with that. All right. So, yes, it challenges the comfortable assumptions about politics, culture, psychology to a certain extent, human potential. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with those ones. We are going to be talking about this this one here in an upcoming episode um, on one of the specific genres of critical theory. But the moral domain part just really bothers me because, especially because a lot of this stuff is talked about in primary school or elementary school, okay? Some of this stuff is actually being taught in pre-K at this point, which is freaking insane to me. I am sorry. It just is. This stuff should not be talked about in anything under 11th grade minimum. This should be taught in 11th grade and up in the U.S. because the students, in order to be able to do these thought experiments, have to have a factual basis 
a a common factual basis of what happened or what is acceptable or what humans are able to accomplish okay so that that doesn't mean that you have to deter your students from looking into things for themselves or looking at alternative sources or talking about ways that humans have exceeded perceived potential throughout the eras right that's not saying that you don't do that what that's saying what i'm saying is that there needs to be a uniform yes a uniform cultural culturally accepted time and place to talk about these things and i'm sorry anything under 11th grade in the u.s is not the time nor the developmentally or socially acceptable place to do it. Now, let's uh, let's look at this next sentence. What are the consequences of schooling? Okay. Yeah, actually, that is half of what we talk about here on the state of education. What are the consequences of schooling? That's That sentence is essentially saying that the whole of one-room education, including all of the amazing articles we have at over at one-roomeducation.com for you, are these are all thought experiments. They're all pushing the boundaries of where you're comfortable in regards to education. So absolutely, yeah, that's what are the consequences of schooling? What are the consequences of education in its current form? not just on the students and their general knowledge base, but also on society itself, right? That's, I don't disagree with that one. I, I actually super agree with that one. So here's this one. Okay, ready? If you listened to the very first episode of the State of Education podcast, make sure to leave a thumbs up to let me know. Because if you listen to that episode, you will know what my problem is with the sentence. Quote, is the United States really a democratic society? Unquote. No, it's not. The United States, oh my gosh. The United States was not set up to be a democracy. The United States was set up to be a republic with democratic systems. So no, the United States is not set up to be a democratic society. The United States is set up to be a republican society in the most general and fundamental terms of what a republic and republican actually means if you have any questions about that please feel free to go back and listen to the very first episode of the state of education podcast where i talk about a brief history of education in america it's really interesting i i'm a history teacher like i mentioned before social studies super love it so i was able to geek out a little bit on that if you're interested a little bit more, feel free to check out my series that I did on the government's war on education. Part three specifically talks about misconceptions about the United States government, why there are some common misconceptions throughout the United States, and what the motives are behind the continuation of these misconceptions within education. So I will make sure to have both of those episodes linked in the notes below. So the idea that intelligence is genetically determined. I think that that is... Yes, okay, yes, I think that that's true. But it can be tweaked a little bit 
through nurture. So it's a nature versus nurture type of thing. And it's been like so many times it's been scientifically proven that if somebody that is born with, we'll say cognitive differences, okay, if somebody's born with cognitive differences, science and the medical industry in general is constantly amazed at the ability of these people with the right nurture, with the right parental engagement to completely exceed any sort of expectations that were ever had for these kids, right? So is intelligence innately genetic on a baseline? Yes. You have a baseline intelligence that you will always have with you, no matter what your nature, no matter what your nurture is. Okay. But we have to look at the nurture aspect of it as well. I don't think that that really goes with the rest of these questions, but whatever. And so far as asymmetrical power relationships, yeah, no duh. They're always harmful to whoever's at the bottom of that asymmetrical power relationship. But the main issue I have with that section is that they say what moral actions are mandated because I think back to 2019, 2020, not so much 2021. We got a little bit of a reprieve from it, but I think it's probably going to come back this summer with um, a lot of the Supreme Court cases and stuff that are coming up. But what actions are morally mandated if you see what something that's perceived as an asymmetrical power relationship. And that I think is the main cause of a lot of issues that we've got going on in Western culture right now. And with those lovely thoughts, I'm going to say thank you so much for joining me today. It was an interesting episode to research and I'm actually really excited about the rest of the episodes that I have coming up in this series on critical theories and their application in our classrooms currently and examining the effects that they're having on culture as a whole and on educational institutions. I think it's a really very interesting topic. It's very relative and I think that it's something that we need to be talking about within education and within our local societies as well and within our local communities so that we have the knowledge to talk with these people in a vocabulary that they use. So again, thank you so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure that you are subscribed and following the State of Education podcast on whichever platform you happen to be listening to me on please make sure to head over to one-roomeducation.com to get a full catalog of One Room Education content, as well as ways that you can support my work. While you're there, make sure to sign up to get One Room content straight to your inbox every time we upload new content. That's right, I said we. We now have some staff writers over at One Room Education and they are absolutely fabulous and they are pumping out some amazing articles. So if you haven't checked it out lately, make sure to head over to one-roomeducation.com. Again, that's one, O-N-E, dash room education.com for all of the amazing content. 
including full notes and references and everything on these podcast episodes. If you would like some behind the scenes content, please head over and follow me on my socials on Facebook, Pinterest, and Rumble. I'm at One Room Education, all one word. And on the Instagram, I am at One Room underscore education. Again, thank you for joining me today. And I am so looking forward to seeing you next time as we continue our discussion of the state of education.